Welcome to the Commander-in-Chief Podcast. I'm Yuri Kruman, founder and CEO of Commander-in-Chief Media Group, award-winning chief people officer and keynote speaker, author of five books, Fortune 500 consultant and corporate trainer, and contributor to Fast Company, Forbes, Entrepreneur, and Newsweek. Our mission at Commander-in-Chief Media is to help 100 million people around the world in the next 10 years to do their life's best work in the here and now through storytelling, educational media, thought leadership, HR consulting, corporate training, coaching, speaking, and authentic high-quality writing, helping people become their own Commanders-in-Chief. Now, if you're interested in being a guest on the Commander-in-Chief podcast, stick around until the end of the show. We will share with you what we're looking for and how to apply. Hey guys, this is Yuri Kruman from Commander the Chief Podcast. As you know, we every week have some incredibly interesting guests. It's not every week we have someone who not only runs a really super, super interesting business, which he's going to tell us about, but uh, also someone who just shared with me that at 52 years of age, he's pressing five, he's doing a bench press of 500 plus pounds, which may or may not be an official world record. Interesting side note, um, Stephen. Um, so, Stephen Nally of Blackbriar, please give us an introduction. I'm really keen to hear uh, more about you and your story. Welcome. Oh, absolutely. I'll start with the present. I'm the founder and CEO of Blackbriar Advisors and Blackbriar Hotel Group. Essentially, we're a real estate investment company that specializes in the acquisition of distressed hotel and resort assets, mm-hmm. in which we come into, utilize superior. Uh, property management and asset management to create value and then uh, dispose of that asset in a variety of different ways, which is much longer conversation. You know, Mm -hmm. I originally was born and raised in a very small town with a population of less than 15,000. A lot of people that know me find this very hard to believe, but I was a below average student in high school. Uh, I was a C student, uh, graduated from high school, uh, knew that I wanted to go into the military. I was extremely patriotic, which I did, served with the uh, 10th Mount Division as a light infantry commando, uh, came off active duty, went into the uh, Army Reserves uh, with the 2145th MP Group, um, and did that while I was going to college, completely got addicted to academics, which is odd because my last experience with school was I was there to make friends, I was there to play sports. Now, all of a sudden, I'm really addicted to getting the information. And I think that is part of the discipline that I received in the military. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I realize I'm getting this free education at this point because I'm using the Army College Fund and the GI Bill, and I'm really trying to maximize it. So I got an undergraduate degree in healthcare administration. I went on to get a, a, an MBA and also a DBA, a doctorate in business administration. Mm-hmm. And then later, I would get a law degree from the uh, Washington University School of Law. Uh, from there, I wanted to be a hospital administrator, uh, and I was pretty clear that's what I wanted to do. There was nothing else that I could think of uh, that interests me more than that. That lasted about two years, and it just wasn't what I thought it was going to be. I wasn't really building anything. I wasn't creating anything. It was, uh, you know, obviously the medical field is highly regulated as an administrator. You know, you've got OSHA, you've got HIPAA, you've got all of these different regulations and your hands are really tied to create something unique. Um, And I met an individual who worked in the biotech industry 
uh, invited me to come over, uh, take a look at what those guys were doing. Instantly fell in love with it. Seemed extremely entrepreneur. This is the beginning of the biotech boom, looking at nanotechnology and all of that stuff. I was extremely excited uh, and later would start my own company, my own consulting firm uh, called BioPoint um, and did phenomenal there. Um, then started investing in real estate. Met a couple of gentlemen who were buying up oceanfront real estate, uh, mostly hotels, uh, mm-hmm. doing a lot of conversions, uh, making a lot of money. And I wanted to learn that business. So that's what I did. And that brings us full circle to where I'm at today. I started off as the chief operating officer of a very large real estate concern. And then from there, I would form my own company, uh, which I lead today. Fantastic. Yeah, all of this is not uh, readily apparent from your LinkedIn profile and just the research that I did. So I'm glad you gave us some background about, you know, before you got into real estate, you know, aside from the Army experience, sort of how you got your chops in business. So could you tell us, I mean, you, you started saying about uh, acquiring distressed uh, hotel properties um, and managing them and all of that good stuff, but maybe give us a little bit a uh, deeper sense of your day-to-day. What is what does your business look like and, you know, how you've grown from CEO to you know, leading the sure. company that's your own Obviously, different pre-COVID to post-COVID, the, the, the hotel industry got hit the hardest, you know, by COVID. So the majority of the hotels in the United States after March of what, March of 2020 were closed, closed by mandate, or even if it wasn't by mandate, just didn't make much sense uh, because you have no guests and the carrying cost of a hotel is pretty large. So the, the whole business kind of shifted in March of 2020 to more of a uh, I call it workout, which is where Blackbriar Advisors came in, because what we did is we are a consulting firm that works with banks that works with hotel owners to try to figure a way through the fire. So you have assets that are sitting there closed that have the banks that have debt on those assets that are trying to recover that debt. Uh, but even if they take back the asset, what do they do with it? Because it's just going to sit there. So they almost have to work together. You know, and with my background in distressed assets, right, this was a natural for me to be creative in that space, to come up with ways uh, to creatively work out these problems and, and, and maximize the benefit on both sides. Now, mm-hmm. obviously, in these situations, neither side comes out whole, right, but neither side comes out bankrupt either. It's it, it's a give and take uh relationship. So a lot of what we've been doing since March of 2020 is a lot of consulting. I've got five major resorts under contract right now that we're trying to acquire, uh, four of which are in the Caribbean. Uh, I have NDAs on those deals, so I can't really go into them. Uh, But aside from that, the big thing is affordable housing. So 40% of all hotels right now in the United States are functionally obsolete because of what happened with COVID. So they're close. So they're going to have to be repurposed. So what do you repurpose them to? Well, you can't repurpose them to office because that's down too, mm-hmm. right? But what do we have? We have an affordable housing crisis. Yeah. So to build an apartment complex, it's going to run you about 125000 a key. Now, that, that was before COVID, probably more like 150000 a key now. But right now, you can buy a 350-room hotel, okay, convert that hotel to 200 apartment units, right, for about... 65,000 a key. So we started putting together models in which you could acquire hotels 
repurpose those hotels or bring in distressed capital to these hotels with these owners and banks to convert them. And they can either do that through the local housing authority. They can do that privately. Right. But there's definitely a need you know, for the affordable housing. I'm going to give you an example. Here in Jacksonville, there are 43,000 families that have HUD vouchers, no inventory. In Orlando, Florida, there's over 100,000 families who already have HUD vouchers. They've already been approved for housing, but there are no units. So you can imagine all over the United States, you know, where you have all these big downtown hotels that are just sitting there closed, maybe may not ever reopen, but yet you have 100,000 families right in the middle of winter that are practically homeless, you know, or sleeping on somebody's couch, you know, take you six months to convert, you can solve a lot of problems. So we've really been working on on that angle as well. So that's, that's what we've been up to. Great. Let me take a pause um, and just mention that, again, you know, I think a lot of people maybe don't understand how distressed assets work. I mean, they hear distressed assets, they think, well, it's, you know, some kind of a hedge funds coming in and private equity and just buying up everything and reselling right. and flipping. And it's not always like that. There's actually a very important social mission behind what we do. I think it's very, very important to kind of pause and, and, and make sure we we focus on that because it's not just about, you know, uh, the balance sheet and you know, what the difference is between buying and selling. Um, it's It's really, it's a huge crisis. I think a lot of people don't talk about this much more than like, Okay, in San Francisco or in all of California or New York, right. we know there's a massive, massive shortage of affordable housing. And there's not a hell of a lot that, you know, city governments are doing. I mean, either because they're constrained by you know, political considerations or budgets or what have you. But, you know, it's, it's a very, very interesting approach to at least chipping away at this problem. And I would even say significantly, you know, several hundred units at a time, which is not often talked about. Um, so it happens, I just spoke to um, a startup, um, I think it's called uh, BitFocus, uh, the other day. Uh, and what, what is their mission? Their mission is essentially to help uh, cities with solving homelessness. So when you kind of start you know, putting these two problems against each other, you start seeing, okay, maybe, maybe there's some way, like I know there, there have been uh, pilots in Denver, I think maybe in Seattle, Again, it's not a it's not a political question. It's just you know, if if there is such a solution to homeless potential, homelessness potentially, right, where you put homeless people in housing and you help them find jobs and you help them get on their feet, they start paying taxes, and you know, you have you have this kind of virtuous cycle that's created. So, I just wanted to take a minute and kind of acknowledge that I think there's there's a lot to what you're doing that has that kind of mission. Yes. Well, um, so. Okay, let's say I'm um, I'm a hotel owner in April 2020. Let's say things are looking really bleak. Okay, and never mind, we already had the all the problems with Airbnb and you know people uh, kind of finding other ways to not not rent a room for me, but from Airbnb. Here comes this crisis, right? Occupancy dead, no good. Okay, so I can go belly up, I can declare bankruptcy, or I can work with someone like yourself to essentially salvage something, mm -hmm. right? And then if I'm the, the city government and I'm also at that point afraid, oh no, what about tax revenue? You know, suddenly there's a very attractive option. So maybe, I don't know if you've dealt with city governments or anything of that sort, but every day. I'd like to kind of hear how that plays out. How does that process look from, from your end? Well, politics is politics. Um, 
which is the problem with politics. And, and, and let me go back and give you a little bit of the reason why these municipalities have a hard time solving the homelessness uh, situation or the affordable housing crisis. So in this country, we have what's called HUD, right? And HUD provides for grants, for grants, for uh, housing vouchers, okay, that will actually pay for people's housing, yeah. right? Here's the problem. There is nothing in existence that will create housing units. So you have all of these programs that people can apply for to get funding to live, to, to pay their living expenses, mm -hmm. but no units. So now you go to a mayor or a city council in a particular place and you say, hey, we have an idea. You've got three downtown hotels. We've already spoken to the owners of the hotels. Uh, those hotels are closed by mandate. If we can if we can repurpose them and get them rezoned as residential, okay, we can create 900 affordable housing units, which people with already vouchers can move into the next day after completion. And here, here's what happens, right? You start thinking, do we really want low-income housing ground zero downtown? What is that going to do to the rest of the area, because when you think about it, you think about it like San Francisco, which is not that way everywhere. But you think next thing we know, we're going to have a three square block radius, mm -hmm. right? Of people camping on the streets, sleeping on the streets. And the problem is they don't put together policy, right? The angle is always to get reelected. Mm -hmm. That's always the angle. Yep. You know, so if you're speaking to a mayor. He's going to go speak to his campaign people and say, if I do this, you know, will it be perceived as a positive or negative? Because I'm trying to get reelected. Yeah. Right. So nobody's ever really trying to solve the problem. The only problem that politicians try to solve is to try to get reelected. But there is a way that you could convert that. Right. There, there is a way that you could create uh, what I call zones for homeless people. I mean. HUD has so many programs right now that if you receive a HUD voucher, and what a HUD voucher is, is that you have low income. HUD gives you a voucher in which HUD will pay your rent directly for you to the person that you're renting the place from. All right. One of the products of HUD is they also have an educational piece to it. So if you have a HUD voucher, you're automatically in their re-education programs. You have access to trade schools. You have access to education. I mean, the whole idea is, is not for you to be on HUD forever. HUD has done a phenomenal job of writing all of this. Mm -hmm. And if the municipalities would look at this as the way that it's supposed to be, that if you, and I'm making this up, I don't know how many, but if you have 20,000 homeless people, and within 24 months, you could cut that down to 5,000 homeless people because 15,000 of them, you, you have reinstituted or you have re-educated, you have retrained. HUD has done that for you. They're now taxpaying citizens, right? They can now self-sustain with a little bit of help. You know, it's just, it's, it's not seen that way. So politics is politics. And that's always been the problem. I mean, there have been many, many projects that we've worked on, not even affordable housing, but converting a hotel to an apartment complex downtown, which is not affordable housing, which would be a uh, a, a level four luxury apartments in which we just can't get the rezoning for, for whatever reason, unless you want to grease every politician that gets a vote 
right? And sometimes that's that that's more than is worth. So, you know, I think that one of the things in this country, especially in the last six or seven years, you know, is there's too much politics. There's just too much politics. You know, everybody's trying like right now, everybody's trying to get reelected or elected in 2022 in the midterms. Right. So everybody's on message. Mm-hmm. Right. And I'm thinking, man, if, if you're local and you're running for mayor, OK, against an incumbent or you're running for city council and you know that there are 43,000 families that have vouchers right from HUD, which means their rent is paid for. Mm-hmm. Somebody just needs to create units. And you ran on that platform that you could solve that problem. Because we've seen in every municipality that when homelessness goes down, crime goes down. Oh, yeah. It's and it's true. not because the homeless people are criminals. That's not what it is. Not at all. No. You know, it occupies resources yeah. that are better used, you know, dealing with crime. So um, these problems are very, very solvable, but but complicated because of because of politics. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, of course. I mean, uh, what? One of the things my friends uh, back in the States keep telling me is like, <laughs> I think you left at the right time. Things have really gone yeah. plum haywire. <laughs> I can remember, I can remember when you'd be at the grocery store 10, 15 years ago and, and somebody would just flat out ask you, hey, you know, who are you voting for? And you'd say, oh, I'm voting for Bob. And they'd be like, oh, yeah, he's a good guy. I mean, me, I don't like, I, I think he's a little off over here. I prefer so-and-so. Now, if somebody asks you who you're voting for, you could get shot. Yeah, if you answer that question wrong, wrong. Yeah, all the way, it's terrible. <laughs> and then most people can't even tell you why they feel the way that they feel. They, they've you know, been, uh, they've been lit up. Somebody lit them up. So yeah, and, and it's kind of like this. And you, and you know this because you do human resources consulting, right? I mean, if you made every hiring decision based on, you know, a, a political point, based on you keeping your job or not keeping your job, that, that was the basis. So really, you're making hiring decisions not on what you think the best hire is, but on the board that's going to decide whether or not your contract gets renewed. And, and their values are kind of skewed, right? They want to hire a chief engineer that has no engineering background, right? Because he's a friend of the family, right? There's at some point where you're unaffected at, at what you do, you know, because there is a science to that. There is a science to finding good people. There's a process to... to to, to fitting that organizational culture, you know, and that individual together with those same belief systems, or at least what they want to get out of that, or or the reason that they're looking at each other for a potential relationship, you know. Uh, but politics does get in the way of that. Not for me, not the way I run my company. Stephen, let's put that subject on the shelf for a few minutes. I definitely want to ask you about your people management philosophy. It's clearly a very deep one. I want to just... Uh, Ask you so look distressed assets. It's it's very much a cyclical business, right? If you catch the wave at the right time, you can come out in a very good place, and you can help a lot of people in the process. But you know, clearly building a business and sustaining it for a long time, it's not it's not just like tea and crumpets, right? right. There's there's a lot of very hard work. A lot of the time, the economic cycle maybe is against you, right? Or you make the wrong bet, or you deal with the wrong municipality, right? So there's a whole host. Of things just like in healthcare with running a hospital and as you mentioned you know, between HIPAA and ten thousand other regulations. So in in dealing with distressed assets when we're talking about hotels again, there, there's um you know potentially a lot of complications. So I'd, I'd love to hear just at least a little bit about some of the really complex problems that you faced and how you've kind of pivoted to get 
get through them. I think for us, that's one of the most important points. From yeah, let me just define a distressed asset and give you a couple examples. A distressed asset could be distressed financially, which means it's at the end of its life cycle. It needs to be renovated, but the current owner does not have the funds to renovate and is unable to source the capital mm-hmm. to renovate. So that's one type of distressed asset. So it's yeah. got a good location. It's got a good history, right? But it's starting to fail because of its condition and there's no resources or no money to renovate. That's one situation of a distressed asset. Another could be a piece of real estate, a hotel that is in great condition, newly renovated, right? Poor management, poor leadership, right? Uh, Guest services scores are down, right? So so we got a leadership problem there. Um, A distressed asset could be an asset in which someone made a bad bet. Somebody bought at the height of the market, you know, and then the market changed, right? And they bought that on a balloon note or something of that nature. And now their interest is like 17%, something just absolutely crazy. So they can't service debt. So distressed assets come in all forms and sizes. I think think the challenge is to be able to identify when you look at this asset, exactly what the problems are. And then ask yourself, do we have the skill sets? and the resources to solve this problem. Because if we don't, we're not making that bet. So when I say I make a bet, it's it's a calculated risk. I know what the problem is. And I already know whether or not I have the skill sets or my team can resolve that problem. If it's a liquidity problem, I already know whether I have people that will financially back me on that, whether or not it's debt, whether or not it's equity and, and how we source money, meaning bringing all of these different partners to the table and then structuring something that makes sense uh, for everybody. So distressed assets don't always resolve, uh, rely on politics, such as a conversion situation, mm-hmm. right? Sometimes it is as simple. And, and, and I know that you see this all the time when you, when you go in as a consultant and you come in and very quickly you find something and you say, wow, this is a big problem. But yet, I have yeah, yeah. But I have the knowledge and the experience to rectify this. I can fix this, right? I just need to get a little buy-in from everybody, and if I can get that buy-in, then we can overcome this, and this organization is going to soar. Now, there's such thing as a broken asset, which is different than stressed. We don't mess with broken assets. If I go in there, it's at the end of its life cycle. There's no liquidity, bad leadership. Bad morale, bad location, mm-hmm. right? That I'm not messing with that. And, and the reason being is it's not because I don't believe I can fix it. It's it, it's like treating one gunshot wound versus 50. You know what I mean? Like if we can stop the bleeding on the arm, we still got the problem with the leg. I mean, there's just too much going on. Those are the types of hotels that you typically see trade over and over and over again. And the reason being is people think they can fix them. But they can. And, and, and you being a uh, a marketing guy, obviously, you know, in order to market something, you got to have something to market. If you have a bad product, right, and the whole world says it's bad, you know, and it's got 20 years of history of bad reviews, just everything you can think of. That, that's a hard that's a hard thing to market. It's hard to increase revenue in those scenarios. And I'm going to tell you something funny, man. Millicovid. I'd say the end of 2020, probably December right before Christmas, I get a call from a friend of mine that owns over 50 hotels. And he says, Stephen, I got 47 hotels shut down, man. I got three still operating. Uh, I need to figure out how to increase revenue. Yeah. 
I said, you can't. And he said, no, no, no. You, you, you tell me all the time failure is not an option. I said, no, no, no. Failure never is an option. Keep trying. But you have to understand people are traveling right now. Who are you going to market to? You know what I'm saying? Hey, disregard what the CDC and everybody else says about COVID. Come on down here without a mask. You know, we'll put you in the middle of a thousand people. You know, I mean, at the end of 2020, nobody was wanting to hear it's going to be okay. Meaning you, you, you just, you just didn't know. We didn't, we didn't know a lot then. So there was no way for him to increase his revenue. However, there was a way for him to decrease his operating expenses, right? To keep his business alive long enough, you know, for something to happen, you know, and he ended up selling off, I think 30 of his assets back to the banks that held the the paper, and he's probably back at break even now. But there are some things which are just impossible. Yes. Impossible. Yeah. You know. Cool. Um, could you give us a little bit about kind of your own challenges? Um, I mean, I understand it's it's not the easiest thing to talk about sometimes, but uh, just an example, a paradigmatic story, something that you. I think the two 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 challenges. Number one, morale. You know, when you have a core team of people that you've been with since 2003, right, and you keep going into bad situation over and over again, right, and 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 it's always stressful when you come in because you're taking over an asset that's losing money and and you're trying to make payroll that first week. So when we come in, it's stressful and it's that way for about six months. Yep. So just as soon as we get the vital signs stable on that, mm-hmm. you know, here comes Stephen Alley again going, hey, conference call. Hey, guess what, guys? We got another acquisition. And it's never a, hey, it's the walled off a story in New York City pre-COVID, you know, that's that's worth about $3 billion, And guess what? We don't have to do any work. It pretty much runs itself. That's never the case. So morale is very, very hard mm-hmm. because you are constantly putting your people in stressful situations. That's number one. Number two, you know, no solution is the same. So sparking creativity when there's negativity sometimes is very, very difficult. I'm a huge believer in a think tank. You know, I will put my executive staff in a room and I will say, here are our three biggest problems. Go, Mm -hmm. you know, and we whiteboard, you know, and there are times when people are still beat up from the last two projects. Mm -hmm. It seems like I'm not getting much, you know. And I can tell that morale mm-hmm. is down and we got to pause and we got to time out, you know, and we got to say, all right, forget this. You know, let's find a way to decompress. Now, I can tell I've rode the horses too hard. Mm-hmm. You know, it's time for a break. I just tell everybody go away for a week, paid vacation, you know, and then we come back, mm-hmm. you know, and we hit it again once the batteries are recharged, yeah. you know. But I think morale is a huge issue. Anytime you're in a business which you would refer to as distressed because you're constantly putting your people. I mean, imagine a soldier, right? Yep. You send him into every deployment you send him on. He's in a gunfight. As soon as he hits the ground, nonstop gunfight, 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 gunfight. He's losing people. He's losing people. He gets to go home for a week. You're like, Hey, guess what? You're deploying again. Sooner or later, he's going to say, I don't think I want to deploy anymore. Right. Like, because I don't like that, Mm -hmm. you know, or, you know, hey, Mr. Nally, how come we can't buy assets that actually work? Mm-hmm. You know, well, we probably could, but that's not where we bring value. There are, there are much better people out there than me 
at doing that. This is this is our niche. This is what we do better than anybody, you know. So I think morale is a huge issue when you're talking about dealing with distressed assets, you know, and managing that's not easy. That's a great paradigm to pivot to our next subject. So, I mean, when I said distressed human assets, I actually wasn't really joking. It's you have, you have to put it yeah. in a joking way. You know, it's like a, the Oscar Wilde quote. <laughs> if you want to tell people the truth, make them laugh. Otherwise, they'll kill you. you know, that's a good one. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, obviously, my experience, it's, it's very similar. You talk about a healthcare company during COVID, utter disaster, right? Because yeah. not only you have all the regulations, you have all the... You know, there's the essential stuff. You have to be in office, uh, you know, burnout. Where are you going to go, right? Where, where are you going to go from burnout? You're going to go to another company that's going to ride you right. to death, deliver healthcare in the home, right? So I've definitely seen some really bad stuff. In this case, I think this is quite analogous to, let's say, if you're doing M&A or some kind of uh, investment banking or consulting, you know, those, those kinds of fields. It really sounds very similar um, in that sense. Vacation is great. Don't get me wrong, right? But sometimes, again, I'm I'm gonna take a guess that um, a lot of the people that you work with, they're, you know, there's there's a sense of like I know they're really good and strong, and they're after certain a certain something. So if we talk about iBanking consulting M and A, it's often you know paycheck, prestige, bonus, like you know I can I can buy uh, buy a house in I don't know uh, Westchester County, right? So you have a lot of those kinds of incentives. So pivoting to people management and, and strategy, again, you're, you're in a very high pressure situation. I mean, that's that's your business. That's the people you work with. That's the assets you deal with. So aside aside from vacation, aside from you know giving them a pep talk, I mean, something in terms of incentives. I'm sure you figured out over the all the years that you've been doing this business how to either help people recharge even while they're doing work. You know, maybe there's a benefit strategy. I'd love to kind of dive into what what your stack looks like. For yeah. sure, first of all, uh, I've never lost anybody since 2000. I have the same core group of executives since 2003. Wow. I pay my people well enough to where they don't even look elsewhere. That's number one. Mm-hmm. They're they're okay. they're better compensated than anybody else in our industry. And they need to be because, in my opinion, they work harder and provide more value than anybody else in the industry. Right. So that's that's part of it. That's so, okay. you know, a lot of people say, man, I don't need this crap. Right. And, and then they think about it. I'm underpaid. I'm underappreciated. Mm-hmm. Uh, doesn't really matter anyway. Every day is, is, is an impossible challenge. Well, I've taken three of those off the table. Mm-hmm. Right. They can say every day is an impossible challenge. OK. But, hey, I'm compensated very well. I'm appreciated and I have status. One of the things that I learned a long time ago, uh, you know, especially with my staff is sometimes I have to be a good listener. Uh, If I have an employee that is an executive that's very upset, you know, I I need to listen to that. I'm not the type of person that would try to pull rain in the middle of a rant, meaning I have an open door policy. You can call me at three o'clock in the morning, right? And, and, And you can go off on me respectfully. You know, I'm tired of this. I can't do this anymore. And I need this. Right. I'm going to listen, you know, and then we're going to have a conversation. And I'm going to say. Here are your options. You know, let's work through this together. Mm-hmm. OK, I can't do anything about this over here. That's that's the that's the, the main part of the job is is stress. I, I can't do anything about that. But here's what I can do. Right. 
I can be here to listen. You know, I can be here to help you in your time of need. And sometimes, you know, people just need a little bit of help. People get overwhelmed, you know, and as a leader, you got to lead from the front, meaning I would never ask anybody to do anything I'm not willing to do myself. You know, I had a senior executive. Underline that 20 times. I had a senior executive that had cancer. Mm -hmm. And as you understand how FMLA works, right? It only pays, I think, was it 12 weeks was the maximum? Uh, They had short-term disability too. Yeah, so they they had like 12 weeks. That's it. Well, you know what? At the end of the 12 weeks, stay home. Kept paying that individual. You know what I mean? That gentleman had had my back for 12 years. For 12 years, a trooper. You know what? Now his family's in need. So guess what? We're going to rally around him. We're going to take that workload. We're going to divide it up, and we do that for everybody, and everybody knows that. And by the way, I want to clarify, when I say go away on vacation, what I really mean is you're not really on vacation. We're just not going to talk about this particular subject for a week. I mean, everybody's still doing their base duties. If, if you're the chief financial officer, you're still producing okay. uh, your reporting. If you're the chief operating officer, you're still overseeing your assets. Mm-hmm. But we're just not, we're, we're going to take a break on that topic, yep. which is, which has got people really, really stressed out. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what I mean by the vacation. We're going to take a vacation from the topic and then everybody can come back to the table and we go around the room. We start with the left. Okay. What do you got? And we listen and we listen to, you know, I don't think we should have done this acquisition, this and this. And I think we overlooked that. Okay. That's fair. We write that down and we reassess everything, you know, and then we figure out how to get it done. But I think that as a leader, when you're talking about managing people, people's a key word. People have lives outside of the office, man. And a lot of times you have no idea what's going on in life. They could have a sick relative. They could have a pet that just died. They could have a bad marriage. They could have a son or daughter, which is ill. We don't know these things, right? And when we see somebody who is a high performer and then all of a sudden something happens and their attitude changes, okay, we can't just go in there and blast this person because they dropped the ball. Sometimes that conversation has to start with, hey, to hell with that. Now, I always say this. My entity cost me $117. Blackbriar cost me $117 to file that LLC. I don't give a damn about that LLC. I could care less about that logo. I don't give a damn about that website. What I care about is my people because that's what my organization is. It's my people. So if you have a personal problem, then I have a personal problem. If you have things that are going on at home, then those are my problems too. You know, we operate as a family, you know, and not just a family per se, like you hear like uh, our company's like a family. No, no, no. We, we are like a family. I mean, we got your back, you know, yeah. no matter what it is. Now I say this, which it's not true, but you call me in the middle of the night, you need to hide a body. I'm going to be there for you. And then I'm going to have to turn you in. But I mean, Army Ranger, who knows what the hell he's doing? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, we're there for you. If you've got a problem, man, come talk to me. I think a lot of leaders are unapproachable. People are afraid to come in and say, hey, listen, you know, I'm going through some problems at home right now and it's kind of affecting my performance. And they're afraid that what, what they're going to hear is, is, well, that's your problem. Whatever happens when you go home is your problem. But you better be here on time and you better perform. And that employee is just deflated. It's like, you know, when if you just would have said, hey, listen, I understand you. You don't even have to tell me what your problem is. Understand that we're here for you. 
you know, and, and if you need to drag ass for a couple of days, let me know. Meaning we'll pick up the slack. You let me know what I need to take from you. And then we'll revisit this on Friday, you know, but you need to get some help outside of here with that particular situation. Man, I paid for more therapy than you could imagine over the last 20 years simply to try to assist people, you know, with whatever issues they're having. But the one thing that they know, I, I, I wish this could be a group podcast and you could actually talk to some of my executives because they would tell you that that's real. You know, if if people don't feel appreciated. Right. And I think that's the most important thing. Do they feel appreciated? Do they think do they feel like they make a contribution? Are they being noticed? Uh, money's great. Money is a motivator. But people want to feel some sense of self-worth, man. At the end of the project, they want to be able to sit there and say, I, I made a difference. I'm a part of a team. I did more than my fair share. And now I'm getting the recognition for that. And not just from their supervisors, but from their peers yep. and everything else. I can't remember the last time I got a call from an executive stating they're having a problem with another executive because we didn't build that kind of that kind of culture. Right. We, we, we don't leave a man behind. You know what yeah, I mean? So I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, this is this deserves a whole other conversation, which unfortunately we cannot today. But uh, everything that you're talking about really makes me think about you know what you're taught in the army, what you learned there, right? Everyone really is your family because you know you're out in a gunfight. Yeah, you're going to rely on them to have your back. I mean, in all senses, right? So um, it's not about who's the strongest or who's the smartest. It's about you really feel like. You're protected. Someone's going to drag you out of that, you know, uh, gunfight if you're wounded, and then send you on the medevac, right? I mean, these are these are practical things that you learn in the course of training and then combat, and that applies to life. It's not it's not some like trivial, you know, you watch <laughs> you watch an episode of Mash and you think you get how it works, right? In the working world, when you when you see this kind of culture in practice, I think it's a very very special thing, and. You know, keep in mind, just for context, right? Again, you're someone, people People know, right? People who work for you, they know your background. They know that, you know, you're an ex-Army Ranger. You're someone who's, you know, physically probably towering over them. And yet the kind of culture that you've built is that somebody can call you at three in the morning. They can voice exactly what's on their mind. That's a very, very special thing. I think that's that really deserves some recognition. So it's it's not about valuing someone just for their niche expertise or how many years of experience they have, right? It's just like, let's go back to basics, right? What are the basic human needs? They need to feel safe, right? To express themselves. They, they need to feel like they're making progress. Yeah, they need some kind of, you know, compensation that they feel is fair. And, you know, you, you really just have to take care of their basic needs if you want them to be their best selves. So I just want to, you know, I want to recognize that this, this is a very, very, you know, simple and elegant way to look at it, but it's also quite hard to implement. But I appreciate that you yeah. went through that with us. Now, in the last um, last couple minutes here, uh, we mentioned before we hit record about the same thing I ask every single guest, right? Four conversations about health and wellness, mental models and life skills, dealing with other people, and a conversation with God or the universe. So if you could give us maybe in the last couple minutes Whatever wisdom you have from uh, your life philosophy and experience, that'll be amazing. Sure, I'll throw out on the the, the just real quick the, the the health and fitness thing. I, I have this motto, and that is: if I look good, I feel good. If I feel good, I play good. If I play good, they pay good. Mm. Uh, something my high school football coach used mm -hmm. to say all the time. 
You know, why are we running all these wind sprints? And he said, hey, you look good, you feel good, man. You feel good, you play good, you play good, they pay good. You know, in my book, Relentless Pursuit, The Foundation of Principle Success, I start off by talking about five very, very simple things. And the first one is you have to know what it is that you really, really want. Number two, you have to have a compelling reason why you want it. Number three, you have to have the discipline to sacrifice what it is that you want right now for what it is that you really, really want later. Mm -hmm. Right. And then four is continuous learning, meaning you always have to be in the mode of learning. Stephen Covey said in the seven habits, right, he talks about sharpening the saw. Mm -hmm. I go beyond that, not just sharpening the saw of whatever your expertise is. Right. But expanding that, constantly expanding that. And the last thing is passion. I hear people say all the time, man, I like motivation. I'm like, motivation is crap. Like I could give you a speech right now and you could be motivated for about 15 minutes and you'll forget about it. Passion is inside of us. We it's every day. It's every minute. It's about being driven. It's about having purpose. And that all starts from knowing what you really, really want. Right. And then number two, having that compelling reason why you want to achieve it. And all of that begins with something simple. I go to the gym seven days a week. And there's a reason for it. It, it, It's not simply because I'm a gym rat. I get a win every single day. That's important to me. I have to get a win, right? Now, I may be on the phone all day, get no deals done, raise no money, right? Make no progress. But I guarantee you when I hit the gym, when I walk out of the gym, I got to win. I I got to win. I get to check that box on health and fitness. And I think that's where it all begins because I've always gotten a win there my entire life, you know, and then we move on to this secondary piece, which I call mentality, right? This, this mental toughness piece. A long time ago, I got rid of the word why, and I replaced it with what, you know, I think that if you ask your brain a negative question, your brain will give you a negative answer. So if I say, well, why am I not succeeding? You know, my brain will say, well, cause you're not working hard enough, right? right? That will be the answer. However, If I just simply ask myself, what do I need to do to turn this around? What do I need to do to get to the other side? That's a whole lot better way of looking at things. You know, everything begins with mentality. We hear every motivational speaker out there say failure is not an option. And that's true. And that is true. But what is failure? In my mind, we either win or we learn. There's no such thing as losing. You either win or you learn. And a long time ago, I learned that when people said, I did my best, I say, no, you didn't. Because what is your best? We don't know what your best is. No, because exactly. <laughs> if you're on the 40% rule, which most people go until they become uncomfortable, right? That wasn't your best. You know, your best started with, I will not eat or I will not sleep until I get this done. Okay. And then you actually do that and then you fail. Okay. And then you get up and you do it again. And you fail and you get up and you do it again. Okay, now you're doing your best. But, you know, I did this stupid, just stupid thing. I got two busted knees. I decided I was going to go run five miles every day. Right. I got about three miles in. Both knees were swollen up. I was hurt. I mean, seriously, seriously hurt. And I barely made it back to my driveway, you know. And I said, that is the dumbest thing that I have ever done in my life. So when I say failure is not an option or doing your best, I'm also talking about, man, be realistic with your goals. I'm 52, man. 52 with six knee surgeries between both knees. 
not running five miles at a six minute mile. Like what the hell was I thinking when I threw that goal out there? Like you also have to be realistic, you know, and, and you're going to have to have passion and compelling reason why, which I had neither. I just woke up one morning and said, that's it. We're taking it to the next level. And it was a painful, it, it was a, it was a painful experience, but it was a wake up call for me. Like, all right, these goals, right. Have to be not only measurable, but have to be realistic. You know, if you're 400 pounds, right. And instead of saying, I'm going to lose hundred pounds, you say, I'm going to run the Boston marathon. Okay. Well, wait a minute. All right. You just set yourself up for failure, right? Because that's too large of a goal in the next 12 months. Maybe that goal should be to lose the hundred pounds and maybe run the Boston marathon should be a five-year goal. Right. But you have to be realistic as well. And I tell people that in my organization all the time, I got people that say, you know, I, I want to be a CEO of a major organization. I said, that's great. You're 23. You know, you're, you're not going to get there by next week. Yeah. You know, like you're going to have to put your time in. Now here's the good news. You're surrounded by a lot of really successful people, you know, and, and that's going to be a journey for you and you can get there. But if, if you think, well, no, you can't be a CEO by next week, you'll form your own company, but nobody's going to hire you as a CEO at 23 years old, you know, when you're one year removed from college, like that is an unrealistic goal. You know, see what I'm saying? I hear you, brother. Thank you so much. This has been an incredible conversation, really rich. We covered many, many different subjects. I really appreciate your time, Steve. Um, please, uh, we'll, we'll make sure, please send us the links for your books. We'd love to post them. I think we're, we see very much eye to eye on many, many subjects. I really appreciate you. And uh, certainly hope uh, you'll be able to come back another time and maybe we can dive a little bit deeper into uh, what's in your books. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Stephen. It's been a real pleasure. Yes, sir. Cheers. Thank you so much for listening to Commander-in-Chief Podcast. To apply to be a guest on the show, head on over to cicmediagroup.com backslash guest. CIC is in Commander-in-Chief. So that's cicmediagroup.com backslash guest. These guys, help us spread the word about the podcast and our mission on social media. We're cooking up something truly special over here, and we really need your help to spread the message. The reviews, especially, are huge for helping us grow and get the golden nuggets of wisdom from our world-class guests out into the world. Go on ahead, give us a review or rating on whichever platform you use to listen. Our mission at Commander Chief Media is to help 100 million people around the world in the next 10 years to do their life's best work in the here and now through storytelling, education media, thought leadership, consulting, corporate training, coaching, speaking and authentic high-quality writing, helping people to become their own commanders-in-chief. And before you go, please make sure to hit that subscribe button for us here at the Commander-in-Chief Podcast so that you can be the first to know when new episodes drop. Let's not be strangers, friend, okay? Please connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, wherever you hang out. And of course, if you want to learn more about our work and impact, or just access some great content. Yeah, plenty of that. Head on over to CICmediagroup.com. That's uh, CIC as in Commander-in-Chief, mediagroup.com. Once more, this is Yuri Kruman, and thanks for listening.